Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael Russo and Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, and welcome back to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael and Jackie Russo. Um, today's guest, I think it may be my new best friend, and I know I've said that before, but this time I really mean it. Uh, we are honored to have David Deutsch join us. And for those of you who don't know who he is, you can go to davidldeutsch.com to check him out. Michael, when he said yes, I had to pick my job off the floor. I mean, he worked on Madison Avenue with David Ogilvy at Ogilvy and Mather. It's one of the top advertising agencies in the world that I've studied my entire career, and he worked there. And according to uh, Mr. Ogilvy, he has a quote on his website that says, you write well. Three words. That That's high praise, my man. I, I mean, to have David Deutsch as a guest with David Ogilvy telling him he writes well, I feel like I'm done. I can retire. My my professional career is complete. I know you he, did kind of fanboy out on him. I was, I was a little embarrassed at one point. I was like, well, Jackie. Well, of course I did. He's so smart. He's worked on so many amazing campaigns. He hasn't just been a creative director at traditional agencies and big digital uh, direct response agencies. He's done some of the top direct response campaigns. And when I think about marketing as a whole, there's nothing harder than some good direct response. And he's done it better than most of them. And now he mentors and he coaches and he teaches. He knows that the words matter so much. And so yeah, it, which is it was why a great thought- chat. Yeah, which is why I thought I would be talking a lot. And yet I didn't get a word in edgewise. You like, it was like, question, 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 question. I was like, okay, I'll let Jackie just run the show today. Well, it's because I did my homework and I was prepared. And so I knew the things I wanted to get his feedback on. And um, I thought he would go a certain direction on some things. And he went a totally different direction. I love being surprised by the answer. I was prepared too. I did my research. I was up all last night reading. (laughs) I think at 3.45, you asked me if we had a podcast today. So the people who know you are going to know which version of that story is true. <laughs> that is pretty accurate, actually. But um, Well, anyway, anyway. I'm, I'm glad you guys are here. I think you're really going to enjoy this chat. Um, y'all check him out. Give it a listen. And uh, as always, you know, thanks for being here. So without further ado, I am so pleased to introduce to all of you, David Deutsch. David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for accepting our invitation. Um, so well, let's I, be honest, Jackie. We, we both we both think that he got the wrong invite. Like he's he thinks he's somewhere else right now. He doesn't know. <laughs> That's what I literally <laughs> said out be- loud when it came across. I was like. Did he think we're someone else that he just accepted this? Because there's no way. There's no way. Um, you know, I, I, David, thought you, I thought you thought that I was David Deutsch, the famous theoretical physicist that wrote the books on infinity <laughs> and all that. So, Well, here's the funny thing that you would say that. We always say that our guests are smarter than us, that we're always learning things from our guests. And so I think that's too high a bar, though. Theoretical physicist, thats he's just too smart. So, no, we just wanted the advertising, Deutsch, and we got you, and that's what we wanted. So we're very happy. Okay. Well, I'm glad to be here. Uh, no, and, and honestly, truly, thank you for being here. Um, when I saw your agreement uh, come across, I had a little a flutter in my heart. Uh, because you've done some big things. You've worked in some big places. You've done some big work. And um, 
I, th- I think I have a little bit of, you know, a little small crush because um, I can't wait to talk about it. So I kind of just want to start at the beginning. Tell me what it was like working at Ogilvy. I mean, it's one of the best, biggest, most impressive advertising agencies in the world, founded by what I believe to be the true father of branding. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, well, it was great. I mean, you um, you felt like you were in a teaching hospital in a way because learning was a big part of it, right? You had you had Ogilvy's books, you had Ogilvy's writings and teachings and things that he believed in, and that was part of it and part of what people there were trying to pass on to the to the younger people. I mean, in those days, David Ogilvy even occasionally came from his castle in France and even walked the halls. So it was, you know, it was very exciting. That's um, amazing. But, you know, Ogilvy, of course, was was the best kind of branding. It's interesting that you, you call him a brand person because, you know, of all the branding people, he was probably the most, you know, what we do is sell. He was probably one of the most direct response, direct mail oriented. And yet you're absolutely right. You know, he created great, you know, Pepperidge Farm and the little truck and all these things that we, Man in the Hathaway Patch, things we remember today. Right. You know, the reason why I put the branding label on him, and I think rightfully so, so I appreciate you you agreeing with that, is absolutely, I think selling is a big part of branding and branding is a big part of selling. But the way he did it, and I think he was really one of the first to do it this way, was he knew he couldn't sell by just talking about the product and talking about the service. He had to sell by talking about the customer, talking to them about what they cared about, what they needed, what they wanted, their problems, their challenges. And then he would say, Oh, by the way, here's the thing. And so to me, that was really the first time when I've studied the history of advertising that I saw that approach done so beautifully and eloquently and, and almost like a poet or a lyricist. Um, I think he could have been a songwriter in another life because he wrote with such emotion. Yeah, definitely. I And you're right. It's kind of selling without even really selling. It's like, let's talk about you let's talk about some things. And here's the thing, you know, the beautiful ad for Rolls Royce just filled with, you know, facts. It's not, you got to buy one of these things. It's just like, here it is. You know, if you're the kind of person qualified to own one, you might consider it. Right. Well, and you know, the Rolls Royce ad, for example, you talked about how quiet it was. And so you could hear the watch ticking inside the car. And so that allowed me in my mind to hear that silence, to hear that ticking um, and to appreciate how quiet a vehicle must be if I could hear the ticking of a clock. So again, he just was a storyteller, which I, I think is so impressive in our lobby, which if we were doing this in person, you would have seen when you got here. Uh, we have had probably since we bought the building. Um, so that was back in 2005, this huge uh, board with what we have dubbed our legends of advertising. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think you might get a kick out of it because it is partly actual real people in the advertising world. Ogilvy, um, you know, Richards, these these kings. Yeah, Yeah, the the big Mm -hmm. guys who've done the shy a day, you know, the big guys who've done big things, but also some fictional advertising people um, like when uh, Tom Hanks played an ad man in nothing in common or uh, Matthew Mm -hmm. McConaughey played an ad man in. uh, the, the movie, his last name was Brat, his character. I can't remember the movie he was in. But so, and and I go all the way back to when I was a kid watching episodes of Bewitched 
and Darren Stevens, you know, he would walk oh, in with right. his, yeah. his ads. And so we have those kind of, because when I think about who influenced us to go into this business or kind of helped shape us, educate us, train us, we received input both from real life um, people who walked before us and fictional ones. So it, it's kind of a fun homage to that group. Yeah, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're, we're total fanboys for advertising. Like, we, you know, we grew up in the culture of it and um, have immersed ourselves in that world. And it's funny because nowadays, uh, a lot of things you're talking about, like putting the customer, the you in it and things like that are, are new buzzwords and new um, new ideas. But those, those have been around for a long time. It's just nobody paid attention mm -hmm. to them, maybe, or realized why they were so successful. They were always doing certain things right. I think great things don't don't die. They just, you know, evolve. You know, at the danger of getting into a very theoretical discussion, it's interesting, the mix of real people and fictional people, because in a way, the fictional, the, the real people are fictional in a way. <laughs> to, to a large extent, David Ogilvie was a fiction that he, and not in a bad way, right. but he created an image. He wore kilts. He cultivated <laughs> his English accent. He, 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 he had his eccentricities. You know, he very much wanted a certain image to be put up forth, and that was part of his brand and part of what attracted people to him and made him so interesting. Right. No, that's awesome. You know, and I think about even with like Stan Richards, who's that next wave after David Ogilvy, but it was again about storytelling. It was about selling, but doing mm -hmm. it in a way that brought the customer in to be a part of the story. They were they were communicated with, not talked at. And I think that's a very subtle but specific distinction. So as you em emerged out of the um, Ogilvy Academy, as it were, and continued on with your career, you really kind of found a, a sweet spot in direct response writing. So talk to me about that transition and how um, how that shaped you and the work that you were able to do in that arena. Yeah, well, I guess because I had worked at Ogilvy and he was kind of had that direct response bent to him, right? He talks about mailing postcards for a hotel in um, in, in England when he was young. Um, that when I stumbled upon direct response, and I, I stumbled on it largely through Jay Abraham, uh, I was like, this is, wow, there's a, a whole world where it's accountable, which kind of scares me a little bit um, and also is kind of exciting. And... Um, and you get paid for results, which I, I thought was just fascinating. And um, in a way, it's kind of anti-brand advertising. But as you guys so eloquently point out, in a way, it really isn't, right? You can still incorporate the best of brand advertising and use that as, I don't know, to me, that's just a tremendous leverage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a shortcut to cutting through the clutter. When you have a brand, right, direct response firms that have, you know, like Beverly Hills MD has kind of created a brand with that and with Dr. Gundry, you know, and that's so powerful that that sells, you know, that does whatever it is, 50 percent of the selling in a certain way. Well, and with the, the word branding itself has become such a buzzword over the past 10, 20 years, and um, everybody uses it, my brand and this brand, that brand. But we're constantly having to explain it to people what we think it is because we think it's different than a lot of people think it is. You know, it's it's we 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 kind of lean on the fact that it's an emotional connection. You know, it's how you feel about something, and um, people get tied up in the identity and the visuals and the this and the that, mm -hmm. and 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 some of that stuff just surface, and it really doesn't 
sink deep a lot, you know, when you really want to connect with someone and have someone become part of something different. Like I'm, I own this and this is my brand. And it's like, uh, what do we say? Uh, the consumer owns the brand. Um, you can't control how people think about you. All you can do is hopefully motivate them and inspire them. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to decide if they love you or not. And they're going to wear that on your shoulder, like Apple, you know, I slap an Apple sticker on my car. It's because I want people to know that I own an Apple. It says something about who I am, not just about the computer, you know, Nike, all these, all these brands, they're so personal to people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the consumer defines the brand, the, the, the brand, you know, defines the brand. Um, it, it's always interesting in different companies how that works. I do I do some work with Procter and Gamble, and when you're within Procter and Gamble, the brand is is so sacred, you know, and you feel kind of like a stu- you know, you're helping to be a steward of that brand, and you're very protective of that, you know, of that brand and what it is, and it it has a personality, it has a a life to it, whether it's even if it's laundry detergent. I mean, look at Tide. I mean, that's everyone knows Tide, knows what that stands for, knows that it's quality. Well, and and to your point, I think it's interesting how the word brand gets interchanged. But at the end of the day, to me, our jobs collaboratively is about following a process to solve an equation. It feels very art, but really it's very science. And so if you don't mind, kind of talk us through a little bit about your process. What do you go through to uncover who it is your actual audience is and how you craft messaging for them that you know is going to resonate? And then how do you test it to make sure it's working the way you want it to? Well, you know, it depends on the client, right? You There are some clients where you do have to define, help them define who you're talking to. And then there are some product clients like Procter & Gamble where they know that you want to know who we're talking to. Here's a slideshow that takes you through a day in the life of this person that we're talking to. Um, So, you know, I I try to because as you guys probably know, great copy, great creative comes out of really a deep understanding of the prospect. And so whatever I can do to understand that prospect better. Right. And that's talking to them hanging out where they hang out, reading what they read, reading the magazines they read, um, reading the novels they read even. Um, but, you know, the magazines really are important because those magazines really reflect them in a certain way. L- learning the language that they talk in, right? People with diabetes talk about diabetes in a certain way that people that don't have diabetes don't talk about it in that way whether it's calling themselves diabetes sufferers or not calling themselves diabetes sufferers and getting offended by that. Um, golf was a lot of fun to do that because that that had so much of its own jargon and way of thinking about things that when I did work in that space, I really enjoyed you know that challenge of how do I write about golf and not get pegged as not being a golfer. Um, right. Uh, you know, I, I find that's that you just hit the nail on the head. So I wanted to just pause you right there. We work um, primarily in B2B, as we talked about beforehand. And so it's industrial, it's manufacturing. It, this is not mm-hmm. sexy. This is um, and at the kindest way I can explain it is non glamorous industries. Um, and so talk about have their own language. 
I'll spend an hour in a meeting and I have written down more words to Google than I have in the notes right. that I'm taking um, to, to be able to you know follow up later. But I love it because we're always learning new things and it challenges us. And I think we continue to grow and learn just like when you read um, Ogilvy Academy. Uh, I think that's what keeps us young and fresh and moving in the right direction. So when you're thinking about being this, this translator and understanding this language, how do you do when you may have a client who is inside their business? They've worked there for years, decades, maybe. And you're presenting them with some information that you've uncovered about their target audience. And I don't know, has this ever happened where maybe they don't really agree with your assessment of who their target audience is or how their target audience thinks? I think there's always a little bit of play there. There's always a little bit of bringing a client new insights, new ways of looking at things. Some of those insights are surprising. You know, some of those, you know, I I, I think it's more, they may know the market, but they don't always know what the market will respond to. You know, they may say, oh, our, our market will hate that. And turns out they love that, you know, but that's that's where opportunity lives is in those assumptions that aren't aren't real that that aren't true right because that's where that's where the potential is right for a big um you know home run on something right well, i think a yeah, lot of people I, I too love- oh sorry a lot of people too i think they, they stick they like to preach to the choir you know they're gonna they're gonna talk to a certain audience mm-hmm. over and over again and they've already heard about you they know you but they're, they're not gonna branch off and go to another space and try to you know, tap into a new audience and a, a new vehicle that may open a new door, you know, and um, they sit in that comfort yeah. level of, of safety. Yeah, I was I was going to say, too, I I, I also love uh, B2B. I love going to factories. I like, wow, look at how they make. I can't believe I'm getting paid to tour this factory. <laughs> this is the best job <laughs> to learn this stuff, you know, because it's so I'd like, yeah, how do you never thought about how they make paper cups or O-rings. I was at a client that made O-rings, right? There's nothing more industrial than O-rings. And then you find out O-rings are in everything. everything. My God, we we, we survive. I, I would die if it wasn't for O-rings. Yes. Yes. Uh, I was in a meeting the other day with someone who makes lug nuts. I don't know why. I guess I just assume that the person who makes the wheel makes the lug nut. Like it just, no. All this company does is make hundreds of millions of lug nuts a year. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I don't well, I, and we're going to have to really stretch our muscle to figure out how to sell lug nuts because they seem so obvious. <laughs> and yet there's a lot of competition for the lug nut business. Yeah. Then you get into the, who are the people that buy lug nuts, right? Yes. Who are those buyers? Who are those companies? Yes. That, you know, what, is, what, what keeps them up at night? Right. What do they want? Is exactly. it really just price or is it, you know, is it really just quality or Shockingly, it, it is all of the above, not to get off the subject, but it was fascinating to me. Um, the number of accidents that are caused by lug nuts that were not made either thick enough or with high enough quality materials. And during the 2021, 20, 22 years, when um, uh, materials were at a, um, uh, we didn't have enough of them, um, a lot of companies made their lug nuts a little smaller, a little thinner, a little weaker. And there's been a whole lot of problems since then. Fascinating. Wow, that is interesting. Right, that keeps the tire from flying off Correct. or whatever. They tighten the lug nuts. Don't forget Correct. to tighten the lug nuts. Correct. Kind of important. Yeah. Kind of important. 
Kind of important. Yeah. So every time I'm behind an 18 wheeler, I'm thinking, when were your tires last changed? I'm going to change lanes. <laughs> <laughs> I see the whole world That's differently probably, now. Yeah. Yeah. That'll do it to you. Exactly. So, you know, I find direct response to be a particularly unique um, chapter in the advertising novel. When I was in Los Angeles, uh, I got to work for a company after my time at CAA, which was a similar experience to Ogilvy, I think, uh, because when I was at CAA, Michael Ovitz was still running the ship. And much like uh, you know Ogilvy, he had his own way of doing things and was iconic in the industry. So it was a fascinating time to be there. Mm-hmm. But so I left and, and went to go work for a company and we did some product launches. Uh, one of them was an exercise product. I got to go on Home Shopping Network. Talk about direct response. Have you ever spent some time in the QVC or HSN studios when they are live selling as they go? Yeah, no, but I've heard that you 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 get those, you know, you you've actually see the display of how many you're selling and you know, it's it's quite an experience. That that that's as direct as direct response gets. I mean, it's 7 seconds. There's a 7 second delay. So when the spokesmodel um says something, mm-hmm. And seven seconds later, sales spike, they say that thing over and over again. If seven seconds Mm. later, sales drop or calls, right, calls go down, then they say something different Mm -hmm. because that. And so to me, I always thought, okay, how do I use this much information? Um, Because this is in the 90s. I wish I had such direct access to people. And then all of a sudden, just a decade later, along came social media. And it's like, oh, I have direct access to people now. So have yeah. you been able to use social media in your research, in your testing, in your kind of figuring out how people respond to things, um, approach to marketing? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, you know, Twitter is great for that because you start to see right away, you just, oh, getting likes, getting, you know, getting impressions. Um, and, and invariably, I feel like, you know, they're right. They saw something in this I didn't see. I could see why this didn't get as many as the one before. Oh, I could see why this one did. Um, every once in a while, you kind of know beforehand. And then every once in a while, you get, you know, corrected in what you think you know. Um, yeah, but for sure on social media, email is a great way to test, you know, concepts for ads. Try something out in an email before you do a advertisement for it or a video for it. Um, Yeah, so many ways to do that now. And I find it really is impactful um, to have that direct link to the people. You were talking earlier about the language. And I just think about um, when I'm, uh, you know, quietly observing in a social media group how the patient talks about something. And then I'm, I'm in a different social media group and to see how the medical community talks about the exact same thing mm-hmm. night and day. You're like, there's no way y'all are talking about the same situation. <laughs> uh, it's so you, no wonder y'all can't communicate to each other. You're speaking two different languages. You don't hear each other. So when, um, when you think about serving in that role of translator, uh, what's the process that you go through to write? Is it a lot of research first? Is it a lot of listening first? How do you kind of go about that, that process? Well, you know, to some extent, it's a process of trying things out, right? Just talking things through. If I can, if I can talk to people that would be prospects, or at least even if they're not prospects, they can kind of relate to the product, right? They might not, just to keep using diabetes, they might not have diabetes, 
But they, if they had diabetes, they would know whether they would be interested in what I'm talking about or understand it. Right. And so sometimes just talking it through with people like, hey, I'm working on this thing for, you know, for diabetics or for, you know, for O-rings or whatever it is. Right. And right. I'm thinking of positioning them like this or I'm thinking of talking about them like this. And they're not you know, I can see they're not interested. So you go away and you come back and something about talking like this. It's like, oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, right. it's like, oh, OK, I think I got something now. Um, so sometimes to me, cop, to me, part of the problem with people with writing is they think of it too much as writing. I'm putting words on the page and I got to do like a good opening and they don't think of it as talking. Like, what would I just say to someone? And I think a lot of bad copy would not be written if they were thinking, would I say this to someone in person or would I be embarrassed? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I have a couple of young copywriters on our, on our team now that I'm trying to um, get them to kind of see that light because it, it that's what it comes down to. Because I'll read something that comes back to me and I'm like, it sounds good. It sounds fine, but it sounds like an ad. It sounds like words yeah. that you really, you manipulated the words to try to manipulate somebody instead of just having a conversation. And um, Jack, I don't know if you got a chance to look at David's uh, homepage, but the first story on mm -hmm. it is the Got Milk uh, campaign yes. that he uses as reference. Yes. We we love that story and we use that story a lot. We we wrote a book a couple of years ago and um, we use that as a, um, as a whole chapter, really talking about how to change the conversation on something, how to really you know, take something that's already been said and say it differently. So people pay attention, you know, and, and they're able to see the benefits and um, how it resonates with them in their lives. And, you know, it's hard to do that, but at the same time, it's so easy if you just look at it a little bit closer, you know, you're, you're patient with it and you actually take the time to see what the difference is. To, to me, a lot of, I mean, it's nice when we talk about the art of doing these things. But like you said, too, some of it is mathematical and science. And sometimes it's just like, OK, there's not but a certain number of things you can do to something to turn it into an ad. One of those things is what would life be like without it in order to demonstrate how necessary it is? Right. And if you systematically think of, OK, how could I think about what life would like without it? And you might come up with a got milk campaign. If you think about creating an enemy, you might come up with a different campaign. If you think about how wonderful things are with it, you come up with yet another campaign. So to me, sometimes it's just kind of teaching people when I try to teach copy is teaching people to just be more systematic, just like a matrix, right? There's columns here, there's columns here, and you just fill in the boxes by intersecting, you know, the two columns. Right. No, absolutely. I um I think about, you know, as you say that, it's like it's so fascinating to me, this juxtaposition of the words and the visual. So Michael's a writer, you're a writer. I, I see why all of our conversations have been about language first. But mm -hmm. how much of a role do you feel like the visuals play? I mean, at what point does the art director get involved? Do you feel like the copywriter needs to just be the boss? Or should there be that collaboration of visual and words. I, I think about Elton John and Bernie Taupin talking about, you know, what comes first in the song, the lyrics or the harmony. Um, it, it's kind of a cart horse chicken egg scenario. Yeah, well, I think more and more design is becoming increasingly important, you know, because everything is visual now. We look right. at it on our phone, we look at it on the computer. Occasionally we read things in print. Um, the The whole process of how we 
we don't just see an ad, right? We see a little native ad, which brings us to an advertorial, which might bring us to a YouTube ad, which might bring us to a VSL. And, you know, there's a whole process that we go through. And part of design now is how easy is that process? How seamless is it? How What's the user experience of that of that process? How easy it is to put your credit card? How easy is it to put your credit card information in here? How easy is it to get from one place to another? Um, how easy is it to down to how easy is it to read the copy on the page? Right. Um, so I, I think, and, and, you know, that's to say nothing of how much a gra- a good graphic can lift an ad, how, how, how much design and something being well-designed and easy on the eyes can, you know, can, I like to tell the story of a friend of mine that kept blowing up the size of his type and kept increasing response every time he did it until he was just like, Dave, I can't, I can't blow it up anymore. I just like, there's going to be one letter <laughs> on a page if I keep going with this. But, you know, people don't think about that. They don't think about readability. They're just trying to, you know, squeeze things in or else they're trying to make it look pretty. Right. No, absolutely so, right. I think that aspect is huge. Well, and I think yeah. it's interesting. Sorry, Michael, I was just going to jump in real quick. I think it's interesting. And you hit that nose on the head, the head on the nose. Um, when we talk about how much more visual things are, again, back to social media, it has driven so much of that. I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in the earlier days of your career, just like in my career, it was heavy, heavy, heavy uh, traditional advertising, TV, radio, newspaper, you know, print options and collateral and Michael, have we printed anything this year? No, we actually gave away our print file cabinet this past year to the school, because, <laughs> university, because we just, we, we I mean, and I, it really broke my heart because we threw a lot of print stuff away that we've th- collected over the years, but it just, it's not happening. I mean, I can't remember the last brochure we printed um, or or digital, I mean, business cards still, but even that is not the way it used to be. It, and, you know, I remember a time when people would go out and find these hand woven papers and Really, it was you know it was a big deal. Now they're just going to Vista Print and they're mm-hmm. getting glossy and it's, it's just it's it's a, it's a a dying or moving on kind of art form. You know, it's it's very digital now. Yeah, I I do think though that direct good direct mail can be a, a kind of a secret weapon these days, just because you know there's not that much in the mailbox. It's unusual, and there's so much you can do with it to get people's attention especially in business to business where sometimes you have smaller audiences that, you know, that can um, you can afford to spend a bit more money on each piece. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's so much, you know, I think there's so much bad out there that good stuff really stands out. Um, I mean, we talk yeah. about that with radio a lot. Yeah. Radio is so no offense to any radio, but most of the spots aren't very good. It's, you know, Monday, 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 or come on in, have big conversations. <laughs> when you can write a really great spot, though, it's going to stand out. People are going to stop and listen because it, it matters. The same thing with direct mail, I think. When something comes across your desk and it's well put together, it's hard to throw that thing away. You know, um, if it has a message, if it's out of the ordinary, if it's cool, um, we're believers in that as well. It's it's kind of hard for getting everybody else to believe in it because they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to run an email campaign. Well, you can do that too, but you know, there is a place for direct mail still, I think. Yeah. And that's the advantage. No one wants to do it. It's a high bar, you know? 
Right. No, you know, it's interesting. We find um, that we've started going back to doing more direct mail for ourselves and for our clients because of exactly that thing. So, David, what do you think are the, the tricks? What are the things you look for to really make your direct mail stand out and get attention? How are you how have you evolved it over the years? Well, I kind of go in two directions with that. Right. One is kind of the Gary Halbert. Make it looks like a make it look like a piece of personal mail. Okay. Right. Make it look. And there's a lot of tricks of, you know, could be from a lawyer, you know, that writes to them and they're like, oh, I got something from a lawyer. You know, right. it's just important or just, you know, just looking personal because it is personal. Right. Because the president of the company mm-hmm. is sending it whatever. And then the other thing is just, you know, three dimensional mail. Mm-hmm. that just get something that, you know, that gets people's attention. I for a shipping company. We once did something that was actually a ship, you know, actually a shipping crate. Um, oh, and smart. You, you kind of pulled it open like that. And it was a beautiful brochure inside. And, you know, that got people's attention. I mean, mm-hmm. they cost, Even you know. Simple things, though. I mean, like we, we're get, we, we've done this for years and get ready to send more out. But we like send out these little toys and gadgets like this is a yo-yo. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole campaign wrapped around it for us. And we get more responses from people that. It keeps it stays on their desk. They play with it. We have uh, balsa wood airplanes. We've sent out uh, slinkies, uh, Rubik's cubes, toys. But that stuff people love, okay. and they they keep it around. I got to get on. I got to get on your list. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're on the list now, David. You are on the list. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> Don't Wait you for worry. My paper airplane. I mean, who wouldn't want that? It's so cool. Um, but yeah, so yes, yeah, so- yeah. We agree with you. So it's about standing out, right? So what Michael's talking about, we um, wrap them, you know, they're in black boxes. Um, they're wrapped as gifts because they are a gift. Uh, and it right. it gets right through the gatekeeper because it's something that stands out and that it's not a bill and it's not a piece of junk mail. So it's obviously something important. Um, but, you know, one of the things we do, and, and it sounds like from the way you're talking, you do this too. There's no one thing. It's a series, right? You always want to uh, uh, envelop right. them in your awesomeness. So what do you pair with uh, direct mail? Do you use URLs? Do you drive them to the website? How do you get them to that next step in your funnel? Um, I, all sorts of ways. You know, sometimes it's a URL. Sometimes it's a QRC code where you just, you know, put your phone up against it. Right. Sometimes it's a, a, a URL, phone number to call, thing, little card in there to return. Um. You know, it occurred to me what you said before, too, about these three-dimensional things and about spending money on these things, that that's part of the math of direct response. That's part of the math of what we do, which is if a customer, if you're a business-to-business and a customer is worth $1,000 to you, why not spend $25 or $50 or $100 to get that customer? Because everyone else is going to just be thinking, how do I get something? How do I get a postcard in the mail for a dollar for, you know, for 50 cents? And it gives you a tremendous advantage because you're thinking more long term. You're thinking more down the road. You're thinking about the lifetime value of that customer. Yep. Yep. One hundred percent. And so to me, when we look at the success of the work that we do, cost of acquisition is one of the most important metrics to measure, Um, because if you've got a good return on investment, then that means you've got a very low cost of acquisition. And I think sometimes, especially in the B2B space, um, those aren't the metrics people are necessarily paying attention to. I I find that they Mm -hmm. often focus on these um, statistics that 
aren't really relevant to whether or not something was actually successful in making the business more profitable. And that's that's what we should all be living and dying by. What are your favorite key performance indicators? What what metrics do you like to measure to say this was a success? Well, I always have to kind of force myself to look at a, you know, to look more at ultimate ROI. It's so easy to say, oh, look at all the opens we got. Well, it turned out that, you know, that didn't really affect because there was less conversion from right. those opens, right? So it kind of canceled each other out. So it's really a matter of what gets us the ultimate ROI down the road. I mean, right. it's certainly interesting to say, oh, this had low opens. Let's try to get the opens up and see what happens. Or this this had low conversions. Um, I like to look at the order form because a lot of times if you can if you can double the number of people that that don't abandon the order form you've doubled the number of sales and it's a lot easier to get more people to not abandon the order form than it is to get more people to you know to click on the sales letter to increase conversions um cuz to increase conversions you got to change like a whole VSL or a whole sales letter to increase on the order form, you may just have to make the box bigger where they fill in their credit card information. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Where, where do you think you lose people the most? What's where, where do most people lose people in the process? At what point is it? Is it a bad lead-in headline? Uh, is it is a call to action? Is the offer? Is like where do people make the most mistakes at? Yeah, I think certainly in the beginning, just statistically, you lose people the most, right? You kind of you get them there with a clever native ad or a clever email and they get there and they go, oh, this isn't as good as I thought it was or, or, or just, you know, inertia. Right. Um, so I think different leads, different, you know, ways of keeping pe people's attention. Um, it always drives me a little crazy when you say to someone, you know, you didn't talk about all the stuff they were going to, you know, you didn't talk about this amazing thing here at the beginning. Oh, that's okay. I talk about that on page 10. You know, like that doesn't matter. They're not going to get to page 10, right? You, you've always got to be selling them sticking around. You've got to always be selling them, keep reading, keep listening. You know, you know, in a minute, I'm going to tell you this. You're right. going to learn these three tips. You're going to, you know, you're going to be shocked, amazed, enlightened. But that's the hook. You've got to get them to, to you got to draw them in. And so we're back to... It's about the words we're writing and the pictures we're showing and that magical combination of cutting through the clutter. Uh, I, I think about when I first started my career and, you know, there were three networks that you could buy ads on TV. Fox right. was just kind right. of starting to come online. So I, I'll <laughs> date myself. Um, now I think about all the places where we can spend slash waste our client's budget. What's your strategy hmm. for thinking about which ones to pick? I mean, obviously you want to target around the audience, but what other process do you go through to say, this is where we need to lean or that's where we need to be? Well, you know, I have sort of a two-pronged approach really, which is one is concentrate on one thing and do well on that till you go to the next. But the other is have as many ways of, doing it as possible because you never know what's going to happen. You never know when you're going to be banned from Facebook, right? right? Or you never know when the, 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 whatever, the post office is going to raise its rates, whatever it is, right? You don't want to be dependent on one. 
But, you know, you also want to give each one a fair shake and develop it as much as possible, not be dispersed. Um, you know, I think a lot of that depends on things like where are the customers? Where where, where do the people hang out that, that could be, um, you know, Dan Kennedy technique. I think you said he was in your 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 hole downstairs right you know i i love his philosophy of be somewhere where no one else is right mm-hmm. be the person selling jewelry at horse shows because there's rich people at horse shows and there's no one else selling jewelry there they're all selling you know um yes. hair and mane shampoo or you know uh you know horse feed or you know trailers for carrying horses they're not selling jewelry so you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Go go places where, you know, where the prospects are, but your competition isn't. Right. No, exactly. And I think so many people take the exact opposite approach. It, the customers themselves, not agencies necessarily or, or people in the business. Mm-hmm. But I, I hear when we're meeting with these these companies and they want to be where their competition is. And they don't right. understand that, that that space is already full. You want to go into a new space. Um, yeah. What's your process or, or thoughts around how to best differentiate to really help somebody stand out um, when it's a very competitive market? Well, I think you want to go back to the old USP, you know, the unique selling proposition. What can you say you're the only one that does this? How can you find some aspect of what you do, whether it's an ingredient, whether it's a performance aspect, um, whether it's who you go to that 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 puts you in a unique place. Because as Trout and Reese point out, you know, people remember number one, they don't they don't really remember who was the second person to fly across the Atlantic. Um, so I think that's you know, that's really important is what can we be unique at? What do we do? Who do we do it? What do we do? Who do we do it for? And what's the reason that they should, you know, use us and not someone else? Right. And that's kind of really, that's a big element of what we do. And it took us many years to kind of figure it out, even though it seemed kind of obvious. Um, uh, in our process, which we call razor branding, we have like these four elements and um, focus, promise, connection, and harmony. Focus is the who, promise is the the why. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about there. Connection is the what and harmony is the what is the where. And uh, the promise mm-hmm. we really focus on, we kind of start real big with research. We work down to the promise. And for me personally, um, it's the most important thing, like buying that unique thing. And it, it's we call it the truth. It's that one truth that can't be argued. And it could be something really simple, something that you have that nobody else has. And it doesn't have to even be in your marketing it's just something you have to know. You have to understand because everything that comes out of that is going to be determined on that truth. You know, your tone, the words you use, how you talk to people. And if you don't know what that is, you're really just guessing at that point. And I'm hoping that this works or I'm copying someone else. And, um, you know, it's just wasting money, basically, you know, and and we, we deal with regional, like I said, business clients, and things like that. And uh, I always talk about advertising like a seriousness to it because, you know, people are spending money on this and they're hoping that there's a return. And it's not just because it's glamorous. Sometimes they really need, they, they need people in the door. They need to pay bills. Right. And so the responsibility of advertising that comes into that is really important. And if you're guessing at things and you're kind of halfway doing it or, or doing it to win an award or whatever it may be, 
it's really a disservice, you know, and um, I think it's criminal in some ways because you're taking somebody's money for that. Yeah. Um, and you have to know what these answers are to these questions. If you don't, again, you're just hoping for the best, throwing money at it, money whipping it, at it. And and there's no way that's going to that's going to end up good. Yeah, especially today when you can find out so much more than you could have before. Absolutely. The technology is there. The techniques are there. The access to people to talk to and interview is there. The the data is there. I have um, kind of the last sort of, you know, question that I pre uh, determined I wanted to talk about. We've kind of gone on a little windy path, which I've really enjoyed. Um, it has always amazed me. So I would love your thoughts on the history of this and then what you think is or is not the best approach moving forward for our industry. It's always amazed me that we don't have a education slash licensing slash requirement for continuing education model the way that an architect or a CPA or a lawyer or a doctor does. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, much as I would like to think of us as having as much importance as a lawyer, doctor, or a <laughs> CPA, the, you know, the consequences aren't quite the same. No one's going to die. No one's going to wind up in jail. No one's going to wind up broke. Well, maybe broke. So there's a certain similarity between accountants. But, you know, um, you know, it, it brings up an interesting point, which is how does a how does a client tell who is going to be a good investment for their advertising dollars? Because there is no, as you say, there is no certification. Um, and advertising is one of those things. It's, I mean, I can look at this microphone and I can see that it's well-made and I can, you know, tell a lot about it, but I, I can't look at advertising and know if it's well-made or at least the cl most clients can't and they don't even know how much of that was the client right the input of the client right. and the ad agency how was it created did it was it overcharged for so that's you know that's pretty risky for clients yeah. and i i would i would you, you didn't ask specifically but you know i i would say the best thing is always i mean it always amazes me when someone says i spent $500,000 for a website and it's totally messed up and doesn't do what it's supposed to do like right. try people out on small things first you know <laughs> have them do a website for your for your you know for your uh toastmasters club or something before right. you have them do the website for your e-commerce site you right. know? um have have a writer do an email before you have them do you know, a whole VSL for you. Right. Um, That's the number one. We run to that a good bit, unfortunately, when we, um, and I hate it. I hate taking over a client that, that we like and they like us and we're dealing with bad baggage, you know, um, uh, a bad website, um, a, a campaign going wrong, like bad communication. And, and we're picking up the pieces of, of something that didn't go right. And um, it, it just sucks. Cause like, and, and usually <laughs> the worst case scenario is they just blew their entire budget with this agency. None of it worked. And now you have to come in and deal with right. the leftovers, you know, and try to make something happen, you know, and that's just a tough place to be. And I think it happens more and more nowadays because it's so accessible. Um, anybody can do anything. I mean, all you need is a laptop and a, and a, and a David Ogilvy book and you could say I'm an ad agency, you know, and um, you know, or at least pretend to be or want to be. And, um, and that, again, that, that that's recipe right. for, for bad, bad stuff sometimes. 
you know, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you're right. Anyone can be like an ad agency and put themselves forward as an ad agency. The, the only thing that I would say in a perverse sort of way, it's good to work with people after they've worked with an agency where it hasn't gone well because they appreciate more what we do and they appreciate more why we have to charge what we do. <laughs> That's a good point. they've yeah. seen what they can get for less, you know? I told a client mm-hmm. this morning that um, I don't like being the first wife. I want to be the second wife. I don't want to exactly. fix all the things that the first wife broke. Um, and they appreciated that. Uh, to your point, though, um, although unlike doctors, we're not curing cancer and saving lives, and unlike lawyers, um, some of whom are keeping people out of jail and doing good work, others we can talk about later, Um when we as a as a society regulate nail care and hairstylists and massage therapists and physical therapists i i mean i really you look at all That's, the professions yeah. we are literally the only profession that manages a lot of other people's money so we hold their businesses in the palm of our hands and yet we have avoided all forms of regulation it's a wonder to me. That's that's a that's a great point. Uh, we must have a good lobby, uh, probably the four A's, <laughs> and, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, There's a lot of you know, and, but and I'm surprised maybe create- because I would yeah. think that the four A's, for example, um, it, and AMA and all of the um, our professional organizations would want it to keep out. People, you know, like I would think agencies would want people to have to have a certain designation and classification. Even realtors, realtors have to have a designation and classification. Otherwise, you yeah. can't be a realtor. You have to just be a real estate agent. And they even have to go through testing and, and designation. So I just um, I can't find a you profession know, that doesn't regulate itself like we don't. You know, in a way, you could look at that as an opportunity, like mm-hmm. could it just you know, brainstorming for the sake of brainstorming, could we create an organization which is kind of a certification that brings together, these are the web designers throughout the United mm-hmm. States and the world that we have determined are trustworthy, you know, um, and that, you know, you can work with. Right. And I feel like kind some of the 4As have end. kind of done, but they don't do a very good job of promoting it, you know, but yeah, yeah. I, I just, it's something that's a wonder to me. So um, I, I wondered what your thoughts were and I appreciate your feedback. Um, I want to not wrap up without giving you a chance to tell the people, David, how they can find you, um, you know, whether that's your website, uh, reach out to you on socials, whatever it might be, because I want I want them to have a chance to get more of your great wisdom. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, certainly I'd love for anyone to reach out on on social. Um, I've been on Twitter quite a bit lately because I like the small constrained format of it and the challenge of how can I keep saying as much as I can in 280 characters. Um, My website is davidldeutsch.com, D-A-V-I-D-L as in Larry, D-E-U-T-S-C-H.com. There's a, a free report. There's some other resources on there and you can find out about my creativity course that's coming out and the copywriting course that I've got and all sorts of other things. Perfect. Thank I'm, you. I'm seeing that now. I may have to, I may have to send some people your way. Um, I knew you would. 
Yeah, I'm always looking for things. I, I remember when I we first started, we went to this. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy. Um, Jack, I can't remember his name. Roy mm-hmm. Williams. Roy Williams. Oh, you ever heard of him? Yeah. The, yeah. Wizard of Ads. We went to a yeah. course. I like it. I like uh, it. His stuff, his. His stuff is great. He changed the way I do things. Like I, I came out of school um, with a graphic design degree, and I was an art director. And I always, I could write. I always had a knack for just writing, putting words together. But I went and I sat in his three-hour little class and in some hotel place, and um, and he it was, was there doing pretty, it. Hold on, it was three days. It was at his <laughs> um, ranch in Austin. We were in the right? classroom that he built to do this teaching. Don't minimize it. it I'm was thinking early. about the hotel we stayed in. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it was early in our business, and it was a huge investment, and I think it set us forward for a lot of success we had for decades to follow. So well, it, I give Roy a lot of credit. Yeah. It's something wow. right. I mean, really. And, um, and it was, uh, we, I, I think we've really done I mean, we don't do a lot of radio these days, but radio spots we've done have been out, outstanding. And, and I learned that from him and it was about how to tell a story within there. And I think he, he used an example. He talked about, um, I think it was a Rolex ad and he was talking through it and uh, he's talking about climbing mm-hmm. this mountain and, each step was harder than the last and you don't think you can make it, but then you finally get to the top and you stand there and you realize that you conquered the world Rolex for the man who wants whatever. But it was like, he didn't mm-hmm. mention the watch until the very end. And he said it once he said, you know, I'm not going to say it five times. I'm not going to repeat the phone number 10 times. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to, I'm just going to make a statement. And that has stayed with me all these years. And, um, and it's so impactful and powerful. And it's so nice when you get a client that lets you do things like that. And, really kind of reach a little bit because it's, 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 it's scary for people to say, man, you're sure you're not going to put my phone number five times. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. And you're mm-hmm. not going to have the logo real big. And like, no, we're, we're going to do it this way, you know? The right way. And, um, but it's beautiful when it happens. And I, like I said, I remember reading that book and it just changed everything about what I do and how I do it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love radio too. I mean, there's so much you can do on oh, God. dramatizing that and, you don't have to worry about visuals and you know, television no production, production crews. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't have to have a helicopter come in. I could just talk about it. You know? <laughs> so, Although I got to say, when I was in advertising, half the fun was putting palm trees in the storyboard so that it had to be shot, you know, in a, in a <laughs> Arabian island or something. You know? Speaking of protecting the client's budget, David. Um, <laughs> no, this was this was great. Listen, I, I want to thank you for your time um, and for so generously sharing your knowledge and wisdom and experience. Um, I encourage everyone to go to davidldeutsch.com, uh, take some of David's classes, learn from him. And um, as always, come back uh, next time for another episode of He Said, She Said Razor Branding podcast. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>